millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Damien Huffenden, and this is the Pop Spot Podcast. On today's episode, you know her as the voice of Murder on the Dance Floor, Groove Jet, If This Ain't Love, and Get Over You. And she's been spinning up a disco in her own home during the COVID lockdown. She's here to give us an insight into her enduring career and her new album. This is Sophie Ellis Bexter. Sophie Ellis Bexter, hello. Hello. How are things over in the UK right now? Oh, generally speaking, I think they are okay. Um, you know, we're uh, entering into our winter, so the days are pretty short. But uh, I think morale's all right. We've been in a sort of lockdown for the last month, and they've just lifted it literally today. So. Everybody was out Christmas shopping today. It was pretty busy, actually. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine this close to Christmas yeah. and having not being able to shop for all this time. Let's start with the Kitchen Disco. Now, for those who don't know what this is, tell us about it and how it came about. So back in March, when the UK went into lockdown, the Kitchen Discos were basically our family's way of coping with the you know, heaviness of what was going on. So like, you know, families all over the world, we found ourselves, my husband and I were on lockdown with our kids. Uh, Richard and I have five boys. Um, all the diary was empty. Everything, you know, work we had planned was cancelled. So basically we just thought, what should we do with ourselves? And we thought, well, let's do a live gig from our house. So then every Friday of lockdown, we did a kitchen disco. I'd sing some of my songs, do some covers. The kids would be in fancy dress usually. Um, yeah, just a bit of fun, a bit of silliness, live streamed from my Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is this is pretty big, obviously, because I imagine during the UK summer over there, you would have been touring a lot. So to not be able to perform must have been, you know, pretty big for you. Well, and funnily enough, I was actually supposed to be in Australia. Um, no. April and May. Yeah, I was coming over to do something called the Soap Op Tour. Yes, of course. And, um I had lots of plans and I'd written into my diary, you know, where I was going to visit in each city and good coffee shops and all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> um, I laugh at myself now. <laughs> I had new, no idea what was on the horizon. Oh, no, of course not. Now, are you planning to come back? Oh, I'd love to. I mean, I've been to Australia uh, many times, actually. I've been lucky enough to go there and I've always had an absolute ball. So, yeah, anytime you want me, oh, I will be there. We always want you here because those those <laughs> tunes are just killer. We love them. And I think we'll go through some of them because they feature on this new album. But uh, on the Kitchen Disco, now your ki- you said your kids appeared pretty regularly. Now, did they enjoy it or were they just like, whatever, mum, just... Just do it. Mm, bit of both, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I mean, the nice thing was they didn't really have a clue the significance of it, really, because obviously 
you know, my husband Richard and I knew that there were people watching while we did it. But for them, they just saw their mum singing to the back of their dad's phone. And that was <laughs> something I really liked about it, actually. Because I would say to them, you know, you don't have to come. It's there if you want it. I'd try and include songs I knew that were family favourites. Um, sometimes they were really up for it. Sometimes they were not quite in the mood. Sometimes they had loads of energy. Other times they just slump on the sofa. You know, anything <laughs> goes. It's, it's all fine. Kids being kids. Exactly, exactly that. Now, yeah. do they enjoy your sort of back catalogue? Do they know how big your songs were? Uh, you know, I haven't really asked them. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess they're used to hearing me sing around the place and they know what I do for a living, roughly, you know, um, and sometimes I'll bring them to festivals and things like that. But to be honest, if I say to them, you know, who wants to come to my gig tonight, I'll probably only get a show of maybe two hands maximum. So, wow. you know, I just, I don't need them to be my fans. In fact, I quite like the fact that they're just not at all bothered. I think that's quite healthy, really. Keeps you grounded, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but also I think I'd find it a bit weird if they were like really into, you know, I loved your album track on, you know, track 11 on album three. I think I'd be a bit disconcerted. And if they were going around <laughs> school singing Murder on the Dance Floor, probably not the best. <laughs> They're welcome to, but I suspect they don't. All right. Now, The Kitchen Disco has spawned a greatest hits album now. Of course, songs from The Kitchen Disco. Was that always something that you'd planned on, maybe throwing out a release from this, or was it just very spur of the moment? Incredibly spur of the moment. I mean, I'd say it was actually a complete re reaction to everything that happened, really. Um, so, no, I mean, I, it sounds a bit funny to say so, but when... I saw, first saw, you know, the finished album and its artwork, you know, the vinyl. I, I actually felt almost quite emotional because it really was completely in tribute to what went on this year. You know, I started the year with a whole different set of plans. I was in the middle of making another album, an original material. And then really the significance of what happened, the, the, you know, the, the gigs that we did here, the kitchen discos became so significant to us. They were really precious. It was like finding a whole new community of people and really, you know, we were all going through something completely together. So I was very happy to throw open the doors of our house and say, everybody's welcome to come around for a party. Um, and we'll still do it occasionally because they're really significant to us. But making an album out of it and taking it on tour next year feels completely instinctive and completely the right thing to do. Now, I'm just looking at the artwork right now. It is very bright. It is very <laughs> disco. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's Yeah, and kind of fun, really, and a bit nostalgic too. It is a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, you re-recorded one of your biggest hits, which was Groove Jet with DJ Spiller. Mm -hmm. um, that's all, That's where most of us met you. Of course, you'd been with the audience sure. before that, but a lot of us got to know you through Groove Jet. Um, yeah. Why did you re-record uh, this song this time? Well, it's sort of twofold, really. One is that um, I did it with a guy called James, who's from the Freemasons, who I've done lots of stuff with some of my singles like Heartbreak and Bittersweet and I think he's brilliant but also Love quite significantly yeah me too um, but quite significantly Groove Jet was a, is a massive deal not just because it was commercially the song that really sort of changed my life but also personally it was a really big deal to me because it took me from an indie band into the world of dance music and through that I sort of discovered my pop roots really but I was never allowed to put the original on my album. Um, it wasn't, you know, I just wasn't able to do that. So I've always wanted to include it because it's part of my history. And a lot of people probably don't realise that you wrote part of that song. I did, yeah. Um, it was actually the first song I've ever written on that, that I've actually, you know, released. Because when I was in my first band, I wasn't at all interested in singing. So I think, yeah, Groovejet gave me confidence in that too. I was 21 when it came out. Wow. And yeah, everything changed from that moment. 
Murder, yeah. on the, Murder on the Dance Floor is another, it's a song that's synonymous with you, really. Do you ever get sick of that song? You know what, I actually honestly don't. Um, I'm on very good terms with all my songs, to be honest with you. That's and, good. Um, and I'm really happy about that, yeah, because I've never quite understood why singers don't like some of the songs they have. I mean, maybe it's just, you know, potluck a little bit, but I think for me, especially because the nature of music I make, the fact that a lot of it's party and uplifting and I'm, I'm just really proud and happy to have a song that a lot of people have got really positive associations with. And I love the fact that Murder on Dancefloor has gone to countries I'll never go to. I think that's incredible. Yeah. And, and the video as well, so much fun. Do you ever cop <laughs> criticism because of that sort of evil character you played in that? You know what? It was a completely conscious decision that because when I started making my solo stuff, you know, I'd gone into the world of pop music and I always felt like, I didn't quite fit in, you know? Um, and I think, you know, I couldn't do that thing of being like, okay, let's do a video where there's a load of models and we're pretending they're my mates and we're out dancing. I thought, you know, I want to do something different to that. And luckily I'd already met video director Sophie Muller, who's worked with me throughout my career. In fact, my latest video is done with her too. And when we did Murder, she we just came up with this idea of like, being a really evil cow basically and just trying to get everybody out of competition and it was so much fun it was so much more fun to play at being a baddie in pop than to try and be all shiny and brilliant you know I, ca I can't do that I can't I would never have won that competition in the video if I'd just done my normal dancing I, I have to win by subterfuge it's one of those things that you, I watch over and over again and it's so much fun to watch. Um, and then I find that now every time I listen to Murder on the Dance Floor, I hear the guy saying, the all together, and then your boots stomp. Ah. Yeah, I still do the foot stomp every time I <laughs> sing it, to be honest. It's completely ingrained in me. And, uh, yeah, I'm really glad you like it because I think videos are like the extra bit of fun in what I do for a living. Like they can really tell a story and you can be playful. And also you get to have a little adventure. You know, as I said, I've been lucky enough to work with mainly one director and we basically say, where do we want to go to? And then sort of invent a reason to go there for a video. So we've <laughs> yeah. got to Iceland and Italy and Mexico and all these places just because we're making a music video. Like, that's just delicious. What's not to like? Exactly. Good excuse for a paid holiday. Um, exactly. Now, another great video that I love of yours, Get Over You. Um, iconic, oh, yeah. this video, you coming alive from the mannequin. Um, was that actually fun to film? That was, but that was a bit trickier. So with that, um, I'd had the idea when I remember I was doing work in Paris and I'd seen all these amazing wedding dress shops and I sort of had this little idea of the the mannequin coming to life so it was really fun to bring it to actuality but I think the thing that was a bit stressful is we did it all in one day and um, I just remember that the video directors weren't they were a bit more shouty than than Sophie so I just I felt I felt like it was a bit more stressful but that being said um, I still w watch it and enjoy it you know it's it's just fun as I said it's like it's basically like making a little tiny film. So I yeah. think, you know, what an indulgent thing to do. What a lovely way to spend a day. <laughs> um, now, another song we love, Mixed Up World. Now, that's 17 years old now. But for me, it feels like it's possibly more relevant now than when it was released. Did you consider remaking that one? Um, well, I think the way the original one sounds is just right. You know, I, I don't really... Uh, I did sing it during the kitchen discos, but... Um, you know, I, I think if it ain't broke, why fix it kind of thing, really. True. And it's funny you say that about the message because 
um, it was written when uh, we'd just gone to war with Iraq, <laughs> wow, <laughs> which isn't yeah. maybe the most obvious thing to write pop songs about. But I think that um, I was w- working with Greg, who also did Murder on the Dance Floor, and we used to always have lots of conversations about what was going on in the news. And I just think, you know, it's it, things that happen to you and affect you in the way you see the world. You know, even then I was like, let me think, I was 23, 24. And it was really, you know, the conversations we were having. So you think, well, let's put it into music. You know, if you're feeling a bit discombobulated and you don't know which way's up and that cynicism seems to be having more of a role in your life than you'd like, you've got to try and find the joy and also find a little bit of, you know, a little bit of strength in yourself somewhere. So that's kind of where it, where it was born out of really and you're right we've all needed a little bit of that kind of pep talk with ourselves this year haven't we yeah uh, well i mean and you're the one doing it with the kitchen disco i think uh, keeping <laughs> us all buoyant um now this new album songs from the kitchen disco there's a few new recordings on here along with all the hits one of which is a mm-hmm. cover of alcazar's crying at the disco tech what made you pick that yeah. one well i've loved this song for a really long time so i've actually been singing it um, in like club sets I've been doing probably for about 15 years because it's just such a brilliant song. I first did it um, when I was performing at a big London gay club called G.A.Y. Yep. And um, I think the song, it's got its roots in disco. So the sample came from a Nile Rogers produced track in the 70s called Spacer. And then when it came out as the Alcazar's version, it was 2000. So it's a you know peer of Groove Jet. So I really like those two strands. But also I think, you know, the poetry of it, crying at the discotheque at a time where most discotheques are firmly shut, <laughs> I kind of, yeah. there's something about that that made me smile a little bit. Um, and it is just such a great tune. It's such a good, it's really solid, I think. I think they did such a good job, you know, with really creating a whole new emotion on top of that sample. And in the video, you're in a lot of empty venues, just singing your heart out. Um, how was that? Yeah, so basically we did it all in one day. Um, the director I've mentioned before, Sophie and I, we did. So we were rushing around. We literally had maximum of an hour in each venue, starting at tiny, tiny place with a capacity of about eighty, all the way up to the O2, which is a capacity of about fourteen thousand. And I did it to highlight the fact that there's all this side of culture that's just on hold at the moment, and yeah. so many jobs and uncertainty. So I did it sort of quite knowing, you know, like oh, it's going to be nice to to highlight that and to make people think a little bit, but actually. I sort of underestimated how it made me feel. And I did feel quite gloomy, actually, for a couple of days after because it's such a big part of my life, not just as a singer, but also as a music fan. And also, you know, I live in London. It's normally a city where there's stuff going on all the time. So to have all this stuff that's just put on pause and all that uncertainty and so many friends who work in that industry, it's, you know, it's quite sad times, really, and quite scary. And I imagine being in the middle of the O2 arena with just nothing around you uh, would be surreal. It was really surreal. Yeah, completely bizarre. And, you know, some of these venues, it was so sweet. You know, they'd put all their lights on or made special accommodation because, you know, they did it all did it out of the goodness of their heart. It was just something where we sent emails out to loads of places and I sort of personally was writing to places saying, look, I want to highlight what's going on here. But I think, you know, this is the human aspect of of these big businesses. Some of these places are now in a really precarious situation. So I think that a lot of people have become a lot more aware of the people behind behind those venues you know one of them is G.A.Y which is in a place called club called Heaven and Jeremy Joseph who runs that I've known him for like 20 years you know since I started my solo stuff and he was talking really honestly about what it's been like to run G.A.Y and just you don't really think about it much do you if you've got these institutions and places that mean a lot 
you know, when you take them away, like if you're like a young gay kid and you haven't got those gay clubs to, clubs to go to, what, what's the significance of that? It's not just about industry as well. It's about emotion. Or if you're, I don't know, discovering music or if you're about to break your first, maybe your first band was about to do its first tour. You know, these are really big life events and it's all just been turned upside down. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And uh, on top of that, like you mentioned the industry and, you know, a lot of people look at artists like you and go, okay, well, you can't tour or whatever. But there's a whole team behind that sort of the, the artist where you've got the, the technicians, the lighting, you've got the people that sell the merchandise, all those retailers that sell the food and the drinks at the mm. bars. All of that has ground to a halt. All of those people uh, are without work and without income. So I think it's really great yeah. that they all sort of came together for you to help highlight how massive this is. Yeah, well, exactly. You're right. And to be honest with you, it's something I never really thought of before because usually I'm part of such a massive industry that, you know, you're more thinking, well, I'd love to work with, I don't know, that lighting designer, but if they're booked on another tour, then it doesn't, you know, you're just thinking about diaries and everybody's normally incredibly busy. There's loads of industry going on. And a night at the O2, if you're the main act playing the O2, there's over 1,200 people that are employed in that venue on that night just because there's a gig on. Wow. So you think about all of those, you know, concentric circles that are happening. And uh, I don't think I'd really had reason to pause and think about it that way. In fact, normally with my work, you're trying not to think of the industry side because the corporate side can be quite an uncomfortable bedfellow to, (laughs) you know, creativity and art and all those sorts of things. But, But actually this has really drawn a massive highlight to, as you say, all the economy of what we're normally up to and all those jobs and all those people that, you know, if you're something like, I've got a tour manager, he's worked for over 30 years and I don't know about how they've handled it in Australia, but, but here they've really not made people feel very seen and heard in those industries. Actually, there's been a lot of talk about retraining and, you know, everybody understands the necessity of getting a part-time job if your main job is not happening, but it's a big thing to say, actually, no, can you retrain as something else? You know, if you're in your fifties and you've, you've been doing one job for decades. Well, here in Australia, a lot of industries did receive some stimulus and some help. The arts and music was one of the ones that didn't receive a lot of help at all. So it's very sore point mm. here as well. So I, yeah. I guess it's kind of a good thing to highlight in this respect that that's the sort of thing that's going on. Yeah, you're right. It's exactly the same thing here, really. And I suppose there's been a slight uh, subtext that if you work in those industries, you've always been quite lucky to be able to do something you loved and, you know, how long did you think your luck was going to last kind of thing. But actually, it's really the arts that people turn to to lift them out of things and to make sense of the narrative. You know, if you take away the arts, all you've got is, you know, the mundane. You need... Art is like the way that everything is kind of given a context and the narrative can be told. I'm not talking about what I do. I'm talking about it across the entire spectrum yeah so it will survive but it's not been made very easy no exactly um on a brighter note um back to the album (laughs) (laughs) we veered off there um yeah you've covered my favorite things from the sound of music which to me seems a a a bit of a departure for you but um (laughs) you you say it's one of your favorite songs 
yeah, it's funny because I can sort of understand that um, for people that well, like suddenly putting on a Julie Andrews song might seem really <laughs> odd, but for anyone that knows me, they'd be like, of course, because um, yeah, I adore all that kind of thing. Like Julie Andrews is just like one of my all-time idols, and um, she's like the other voice of my childhood. You know, kind of alongside like my parents' voices, kind of thing. I just used to watch <laughs> Mary Poppins and Sound of Music over and over, and I think you know during this year. I've just felt such a massive tug towards nostalgia and the things that have always had happy memories or kind of, it can be a sort of like slightly, I don't know, comedic way of looking at quite a weird, weird turn of events and a heavy year. So, so yeah, I think some, in some ways the kitchen discos was a little bit like going into my head. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be singing one of my songs one minute, then having a rant while singing, I don't know, Prince get off the next and then doing a song from Greece. And that's, that's basically what it's like if you're sat in my head for a little while. <laughs> it sounds like a fun place to be, though. <laughs> you know what? It's not all bad. It just needs a bit of a sort out. Every <laughs> now, are there any songs that you considered for the album that didn't make the cut? Oh, so many. I mean, the thing was that was quite hard is that um, I would have loved to have included more covers that I did during the during the lockdown discos because I did things like Our House by Madness and Like a Prayer by Madonna, and I wow. adored singing them. But I didn't really. I basically had. Um, a double vinyl of worth of time. And uh, so I had to kind of be really selective. So I decided, okay, I'll do all my singles that I performed and then I'll just do a handful of covers that I think cover a little bit of the spectrum of what we did here. And, you know, I'm pleased with what I did, but yeah, there's always more stuff to add, always. I would like to have done some deep cuts as well because I did quite a lot of album tracks that are kind of like fan favourites, but, you know, you can't have it all. There's always (laughs) next time round. Exactly, yeah. Kitchen Disco lives on. Now, in true disco fashion, you just mentioned you you released this on vinyl. It also went out on cassette. Did you ever think you'd release a cassette of music? No, but they look so cute. I know, right? Yeah. When I got them through, I was like, oh, my God, that's so pleasing. I find them very covetable. And it's funny because it's just something very pleasing about seeing the artwork on that scale, actually. But doing the vinyl is, for me, my kind of personal it's like very gratifying because when I was signed to Universal, you were only allowed to do two, um, two formats of your album. So everybody used to do CD and cassettes because, you know, this was like the noughties and that was the thing. Yeah. So actually a lot of songs that I've done had never come out on vinyl before, whereas now vinyl's having a really big resurgence and it sounds gorgeous and it looks cool and you get to have big artwork and do the big gatefold. And no, oh, I'm totally sold. I've loved it. I've done every, all of my independent albums because this is my... Mm, fourth release on my own label and I've always made sure I do vinyl now. It's got to be there. Yeah, well, and I was just going to say as well, like a lot of people who are discovering vinyl and cassette now, like a younger generation, um, Mm -hmm. and it it disappeared for for many years because CD was the new big thing. It's just so strange to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I think, again, it's firstly it's a bit nostalgia. I mean, the cassette thing is kind of probably quite quirky because that's just – you know, nothing really sounds better on cassette. Yeah. But um, but I think vinyl has definitely got a value. It definitely does. And, um, you know, it, it's just pleasing. And I think it's something you can collect and you can enjoy. And it sort of reminds you of, you know, when you were young and you'd pour over your parents' record collection. And just the way it sounds and the way it ages is really, really pleasing, I think. Now, I just want to pick up because you mentioned you've got your own label now. This is something I, not even I realised. How is that having your own record label? 
So after I finished with a decade of being with Universal Records, which was amazing, you know, I was with Polydor and I toured the world with all that. But after I left, um, I decided to do something really different because I'd made a lot of pop and dance records and I thought I just need to shake things up a little bit. So I decided to make this album called Wonderlust, which was kind of quite folky, really. And I recorded it with um, a singer-songwriter called Ed Harcourt. And I just did it myself. I thought I really need to give myself this opportunity to do something different. Um, And I absolutely adored it. And, you know, there's a lot of hard work that goes on with my management with the label because, you know, you suddenly have to take on everything. But I love the, the fact that there's so much freedom and... You know, I, I'm very grateful to the decade I had with a major label because it gave me so much that I couldn't have given myself if I was starting from now. But from my point, like where I'm at in my career now, having been able to make my own decisions and not do things by committee is just glorious. I absolutely love it. Well, I can imagine. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now, on top of Mm. everything else that you're doing, you're a podcaster now as well. Tell me about spinning (laughs) plates. Yeah, so this year, um, back in January, I started getting wheels in motion to do a podcast. And I thought, oh, you know, it'd just be a nice little thing to try out. I had no idea if I was really going to enjoy it as a medium. It's something, you know, everybody seemed to have a bloody podcast. So I was like, (laughs) oh, you know, what, what what can be special that I've got to say? And then, you know, as with a lot of projects that you do, I think, they come at work at best if you're really quite selfish about it and you don't really sort of think about what other people are going to think and just do something you think you might listen to. So I decided to talk to lots of other working mums about the balance. I suppose it's something I think about all the time. And then we went into lockdown and suddenly this I became this like cartoon example of trying to work from home, like <laughs> doing a gig and trying not to step on my baby. Um, uh, but I have, I've been having all these lovely conversations throughout the year with these amazing women. Um, and it's been good on so many levels, not just because I get these amazing chats and I get to be really nosy and, you know, women from lots of different walks of life. And of course we do talk about child raising, but actually it's more about how you kind of keep a little bit for yourself, I think, as, as life goes by and you sort of keep, keep a bit of your a kernel that's just you. Um, and, and also it's just been quite good for my confidence really, cause I've never really done anything where I've interviewed people and I absolutely love it. I find it really exciting. I love listening to people. Everybody's got such amazing stories and most of the people I talk to, I've never met before. So I think it's been quite good for me really just to kind of say, you know what, I'm just going to put myself out there and say, would you like to talk to me? And happily, a lot of the people I've asked have said yes. So it's been really, I'm just recording my third series now. Funnily enough, that's very much how this podcast came to be. So I'm glad I'm glad we share that. Ah, yeah, no, well, it's nice, isn't it? And, you know, it's. I think you know when you're onto something good as well because when people say they've heard it, you're always a bit like, oh, okay, I sort of forgot there was going to be someone listening to that really. Exactly. Like in a nice way because yeah. you're already really happy with it for yourself. So no, it's been cool. I spoke yesterday to Roisin Murphy actually, which was really lovely. I, I, I love her so much anyway, but I think talking to another singer was really fun. But, yeah, it's just... 
I'm just trying to cast my net far and wide, actually. Loving a, it. A colleague of mine spoke to her as well and said she's just the best. Yeah, she's very cool yeah. and very calm. Um, I think of her as like the sort of much more like classy version of me. I'm much more of a tart than my sheen. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, I think our time is just about up. I've got to let you get back to the kids and whatever. But before you go, Songs from the Kitchen Disco, do you have a favourite song of your own? Can you pick one? Oh, well, I suppose in a sort of broad sense, Merge on the Dance from Gruja have got a very special place in my heart because of the places they've taken me to. But, um, but if it's sort of a more personal thing, then I think – the song that was from my that fifth album I talked about, the one that was like my folky album, it's an album called Wonderlust, and I did a song called Young Blood, which was a real departure for me. It was based on a conversation I'd had with my mum, where she spoke about how how happy she is with my stepdad, John, and how when you first fall in love with somebody, if you're with the right person, then no matter how many years go by, part of you always sees each other the age you were when you first met. It kind of crystallises you a little bit. And I thought... I thought that was really lovely. So that's the song that came out of it. And it was the first time I'd really done a song like that. And I'm, yeah, it was, I think Young Blood would be the one I would say, you know, it, it kind of changed my life again, really. I, um, I have to say, I love your collabs with the Freemasons. I think they're some of the best dance songs. Um, I mean, your ah, entire, entire catalogue is amazing, but I think the Freemason stuff is just so good. So I'm glad that they're on this album. Um, songs, oh, yeah. Songs from the Kitchen Disco is available now on CD, streaming and vinyl and cassette if you can find it because I think it's sold out in your online store. Oh, that's I annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Time for a second run, I think. <laughs> Um, but hopefully, okay. hopefully we can see you in Australia soon because uh, it'd be great oh, to see I you live so. again. Do you know um, the last time I came to Australia, I was only there for two nights oh, in two different cities. It not was enough pretty, time. pretty wild. No, it's not really, is it? Sophie, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I really hope we get to see you soon. Me too. Fingers crossed. Lots of love. Thank you. My thanks to Sophie Ellis-Bexter for joining me today. Make sure to subscribe for more celebrity interviews and you'll find more entertainment news at 7news.com.au. I'm Damien Haffenden and this has been your Pop Spot. Listener.